Okay, we're going to start a minute early today because uh, we're live. Sergio had to fix something, and so we're going to start just a minute early. But hold on a sec. Um, um, okay, we are. We're live. So here we go. We had the same problem that we had last uh, Sunday. Facebook has got a problem, and it shut everything else down. So we turned it on early. He got that fixed. There's Christian some, Oregon there's some nasty yeah. stuff right. in Facebook. Oh, yeah, Facebook there's, there's is the about. nothing but a problem. So, okay, go ahead. We're an hour. Okay, here we go. Psalm 119, verse 1. Strong power leader, also oxhead. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his way. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart. I will learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. Uh, good deal. Okay, so we have uh, Psalm 119 starting that all over again. And uh, let me see. We've got a couple things here. If anybody wants, the doctor printed these off. It's a synopsis of the dispensations. So if anybody here wants one of these to take home, it's very well laid out and it gives uh, all kinds of information. So we have these and uh, we'll leave those there for now. Thank you. And, uh, and uh, let's see here. Then we have, if anybody wants to read this, I want it back. It's The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. Very good book. It took me, uh, let's see, it's um, about 116 pages long, so it took me about 116 days to read it, but I read a page a day. It didn't take quite that long because, anyway, uh, so that's here if somebody wants to read that. And uh, let's see here. Might as well read this because we got a couple extra minutes today. We start a couple minutes earlier. This is uh, our friend in Scotland, Graham, who attends online, wrote this, and he said I could read it to you. So, uh, O Lord, O Lord, my strength and comfort, how you hold me high. O Lord, O Lord, O Jesus, you wipe the tears when I cry. O Lord, O Lord, O Jesus, you pick me up when I'm low. O Lord, O Lord, O Jesus, I deserve what's down below. But you, O Lord, my Savior, the price was your blood, as in the days of Noah came the greatest flood. This time is the last time. No more warnings, will you tell? Repent and confess to Jesus, for there really is a hell. O Lord, O Lord, O Jesus, you've washed my sins away. O Lord, O Lord Jesus, I give thanks to you this day. O Lord, O Lord, O Jesus, the rolling stone from the grave, it gathered no moss. O Lord, O Lord, O Jesus, you died for me on the cross. Oh, very nice. Thank you, Graham. And let's see here. Uh, might as well read this day in Christian history, and we're just... I don't know, what, what is today? Today's the 12th. 12th of what month? It's April. April. Okay, 12 April. So uh, let's see here. 12 April. They paid a terrible price. After 37 years as a missionary to Burma, Adoniram Judson could look back not only on good times, but also on extremely difficult times. He had struggled against intense persecution, imprisonment, disease, and discouragement. Yet at the end of Judson's labors, he could look with satisfaction on a complete Burmese translation of the scriptures, a Burmese English dictionary, 63 churches among the Burmese and Karens, 
and best of all, 7,000 Burmese Christians. Imagine that. One guy goes over there and does all that. Yeah. In November 1849, Judson was carrying, I wish I could say something like that. I mean, you know, you think of going out and doing something for the Lord. Wow. In November 1849, Judson was caring for his convalescent wife, Emily, as she resolved from a debilitating disease. After a cold night of caring for a sick child as well, Judson found himself ill. At first, it seemed a mere cold, but dysentery and congestive fever followed. Though pregnant with their second child, Emily steadfastly ministered to him day and night as he lay in bed, racked with unbearable pain. After a time, it became clear that he would not recover in the stifling Burmese climate. Together, they decided his only chance to survive was an extended sea voyage out into the clean ocean air away from the pestilence of the jungle. As they talked about the possibility of his death, he remarked, I am not tired of my work, neither am I tired of the world. Yet, when Christ calls me home, I shall go with the gladness of a boy bounding away from his school. On the ship, he'd have his friends and doctors with him, while upon land, he'd have praying friends and family. By the time he left on April 3rd, 1850, Judson had difficulty walking and speaking. Emily kissed her silent yet grateful, his silent yet grateful lips, and he was carried to the ship. Emily prayed hard and long, but she knew in her heart that her husband's death was near. On April 22nd, their son Charlie was born, but did not survive the day. Emily poured out her grief through a poem she entitled Angel Charlie. He came a beauteous vision, then vanished from my sight, his wing one moment cleaving the blackness of my night. My glad ear caught its rustle, then sweeping by he stole. The dewdrop that is coming had cherished in my soul. Oh, he had been my solace when grief my spirit swayed, and on his fragile being had tender hopes been stayed. Where thought, where feeling lingered, his for form was sure to glide, and in the long night watches, t'was ever by my side. He came but as a blossom, its petal closes up, and hides them from the tempest within the sheltering cup. So he is spirit gathered back to his frightened breast, and passed from earth's grim threshold to be the Savior's guest. Emily didn't find out until several months later that Adoniram had died at sea on April 12, 1850, mm -hmm. ten days before Charlie was born. He was in heaven to welcome his little son. Many Christians like Adoniram Judson have paid a profound price for serving Jesus. Yet because of him and missionaries like him, there are more than 2.3 million Christian believers in Burma, modern Myanmar, today. If you, uh, if God calls you to do so, are you willing to suffer for him? Acts chapter 9, verse 15 and 16. Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for me. Wow. Wow. And we sit here in a nice air-conditioned church and think that life is so bad when we lose our internet. Wow. The what? Oh, good. Thank you. Let me get that right now. Let me take it down quickly, and maybe I can beat it before the camera moves. Oh, there we go. Okay. So we got, uh, let's see here, Romans chapter, uh, oh, wait, we got to pray. Heavenly Father, we certainly do pray to you for uh, the many needs that are in our life, and we want to... Uh, pray for our brother who lost his mother this past week, and uh, he's here today, and he looks good, but I know he's got a pain in his heart for her loss, his loss of her, but she was one of your faithful people, and they'll be reunited some wonderful day, 
and we pray for uh, the daughter-in-law of Jim and Linda who has shingles something that is most uncomfortable stepdaughter daughter-in-law daughter-in-law and uh, we know that that's something that you can heal if it's your desire and we would ask that it would be so because it's just it's a really debilitating thing Lord you know all of the things that are on our hearts and uh, in our lives that are afflicting us right now and take away those troubles and give us joy and peace and calm until your return for us and we certainly pray that that day is soon. It's a troubled world. It's a difficult world. There's a lot of uh, unhappiness, a lot of sorrow, and a lot of deception out there. And I would just pray that people would wake up to the fact that uh, we need to get not only right with Jesus through salvation, but to get right with Jesus through doctrine. Because we're going to stand before you and we're going to make an account of the life we lived. And calling on you is one thing, but pursuing you is another. And so open hearts of your people to want to do both not just to be saved but to actually make something of their salvation and to be productive as christians we pray this that you will be glorified lord and we also pray that this class today will be something that will bless your heart and that will uh, uh, be proper and uh, correct according to your word and that we wouldn't deviate from it we pray this in jesus name amen, amen. okay we did number three last week i think wasn't that right Articles 1 and 2. Okay, so we're on number 4. We affirm that God, this is the Chicago Statement of Faith. We affirm that God who made mankind in his image has used language as a means of revelation. Okay? Pretty important if you think about it. We deny that human language is so limited by our creatureliness that it is rendered inadequate as a vehicle for divine revelation. We further deny that the human corruption of human culture and language through sin has thwarted God's work of inspiration. If you think about it, the, the uh, negative is telling them why they gave the positive. God gave us languages, and I don't care what language you go to in this world and you tell them about Jesus. If you tell it properly, they will understand. Now, there is a truth that uh, this is an example for you to understand as far as um, translating the Bible. In some cultures, when I was at Wycliffe, one of the cultures that they had gone in witness to, their idea of what Judas did was a noble thing, not a bad thing. They, they couldn't understand why he was looked at as the bad guy in the Bible, because to them, deception is a part of their culture, okay? And so translators have to actually work around things like that to make it understandable. This isn't just something that we can say, well, this is what it says and you need to accept it. People have to have the communication to them of why it's wrong, etc. because cultures are completely different around the world. If you go to Indonesia and you touch somebody on your head, you've offended them, right? Here, you touch somebody on the head and it's like, you know, you're my good buddy or whatever. I mean, there are just all kinds of things that we have to learn from one culture to another. Concepts sometimes need to be translated instead of individual words. And if you're a King James onlyist, you're going to hate that. You're going to say, well, that's just not right. But that's the way of the world. God developed languages. He developed all of them, and he sent them around the world. You've got the Chinese language, which is pictographs. Okay? It communicates an idea. You've got uh, uh, the Hebrew language is kind of a pictorial alphabet as well, as we see every single week. It's a consonantal language. There's no vowels in it. Okay? It's just consonants. And there's, you, you just have to adapt when you take languages and you express ideas so what they said there's a very good number four 
I mean, they could have put this at the end just to say that, but they're making a logical defense as to why they believe that Scripture is one, the Word of God, that it is understandable, that it can be knowable, etc. So if you just think about what they said in the negative, it tells you why they gave the positive. We can understand the Bible because it is something that God communicated to the people of the world, and the people of the world speak languages. It's how do you develop that idea into their heads so that it's culturally understandable, that it how many languages out there don't have any language at all? None. Nothing written. No, nothing written. That's I'm, uh, Thank you. No written alphabet at all. And so when Ray and Jess go to Papua New Guinea, if they get one of those tribes that has no written language, guess what they are going to do, have to do first? They're going to have to develop a written language for them. And they can do it however they want. They'll be treading uncharted waters, and they can use English characters. They can use Corella characters. They can make up their own characters. It's totally up to them how they do it. They've been trained in this. They're developing the skills for it. So when they get there, they will know what to do. But this is it is not just as easy as people think to go out and uh, to uh, express the word of God. But when you do it, the simple gospel message is translatable to any language on earth. We've seen this throughout every culture that has been evangelized. People come to the Lord. But anyway, just a little side thing. Very good, number four. So we'll get number five next week. Will they be here on Sunday? They should be. I haven't heard from, but they should be. And uh, I need to send them an email to make sure. But uh, they should be here on Sunday to uh, open us and to uh, tell about where they're at, where their budget is. The last time I heard from from them about three weeks ago, they were at 37% funding which means they still have, what, uh, 63% to go. And that's a long way to go when you need to have that much money before you can get on a plane and start telling people about the very thing that we're talking about here. So we would hope and pray that they would get that. If I put in plug for the Jesus. Yes. They already have it in 1,618 languages. Present time. They are working on ever, you know, Expanding it. New languages? Anything above 50,000. They had 865 languages that they're working on. They have translated these in the last two or three years. They're hoping to have every language translated by 2025. That's only seven years away. That's amazing. So the Jesus film is, they can't hear you, so that's why I'm trying to repeat what you're saying. They actually have 4,000 people in India, and they have 25 different dialects and languages yep. that they're working on. Yep. So they're hoping, what he's saying is that they're hoping on having the Jesus film come to every language on the planet by 2025. And that's a real astonishing thing. That That's an amazing achievement. And if it happens, then we are definitely going to uh, it's, it's have... It's been an explosion Yeah. in the last several years, and I have never seeing the corporation that is happening, the different mission agencies, until the co-mission in 19, I think, 89 and 90. Everybody went their own way. That's right, but they are really joining together. And plus they have these computer languages now that can adapt. They can adapt from one to the other very quickly. If it's a similar language, it can actually pick up these things and it can adapt. And so Bible translation, we almost have the Bible in every hand on the planet right now, whether it's a Jesus film or whether it's actually a part of the Bible itself. we got to get started, but go ahead, please, real quick. The film script for the Jesus film, the reason it has power, it's the Gospel of Luke. That's, into a, yes. Made into a film script. The Gospel of Luke is especially uh, uh, directed to the sons of Japheth. You've got uh, Matthew is to the sons of Shem, which is, um, you know, uh, the, the Semite people. 
and uh, then you have, uh, which includes the Arabs. You know, when we go back to Shem, that's the father of the modern Arabs and, and the Jews as well. But anyway, then Luke is more to the sons of Japheth. It's uh, understood better by them. And then you have Mark is written to the sons of Ham. That follows along with Noah's blessing. But that that's it'd take a long study to get into there. And then John is just kind of a universal gospel. That's why a lot of people say, just give John to that anybody and they'll read it and they'll understand it. But anyway, um, absolutely, it's based on, the Jesus film is based on the Gospel of Luke. So anyway, we've got to get into uh, Romans uh, Romans uh, ten nineteen now is where we're at. Again, I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you envious by those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that has no understanding. Okay, that's going back to Isaiah once again. Now, before I get started on that, last week I could not find the verse I was looking for. I had the right verse written down, and I just was looking at the wrong one in the Bible. I was talking about the word world, okay? And the reason why I was doing that, Rick came up later, and he said, I didn't understand what you were talking about. And the reason why is because I'm going to read this again really quickly so you understand what I was talking about, because... In that verse, they said that um, uh, these people have come and they have disturbed all the world. Okay, well, here's my question. Had Paul and the people that he was with disturbed all of the world? No. No. It's, it, it's a term. Okay, it's, it's saying that they've gone out and they've, and we do the same thing. Man, we know him everywhere, even though he's not known everywhere. He's not known, in, for example, in Papua New Guinea. That was the point I was making. Two different words were used for earth and world. And I'll read this just very quickly so you understand. Um, uh, the earth is speaking of the physical earth. This voice has been transmitted on the planet. And the words to the end of the world, okay? The word for words is rimata. This signifies the matter which is being relayed. The subject, the gospel, is what has gone out to the ends of the world. But, in fact, not to the ends of the world at the time that Paul wrote it. Okay, so he's saying that the word of God has gone out to the ends of the world. People all over the world can understand it on a basic level. That was where we uh, talked about uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the, right? Okay, so there's different things going on there. But when some, we, we have to be careful to understand that when we read the Bible, not every every means every, not all all means all. Okay, that's an important thing to understand. Um, uh, when Jesus was born, it says everybody in Jerusalem was disturbed. That's a misquote, but you understand. Was everybody in Jerusalem disturbed that Jesus was born? No. It was saying that the rulers of Jerusalem representing Jerusalem were disturbed. Okay, uh, when it says that uh, all the people went out to be baptized by John. Well, you go a little bit later and all the people hadn't been baptized by John because it says they rejected the the message because they hadn't been baptized by John. So be careful when you hear every, every, all, all, etc. Don't Don't just take that as, and if you hear it in a sermon by somebody that says, that says all, and that means all, it does not mean all, always. Keep things in context. Anyway, that was the point I was try, trying to make last week, and I know I got screwed up on that, and I'm sorry. Is that, but, similar, is that similar to what, how you define... What it is? Yeah, is, is? Is, is? Yeah, Bill Clintonisms. That's right. I, I, well, that depends on what the meaning of is is. So, it, it, yeah, uh, it, it's one of those things. We just have to be careful when we when we evaluate things to take everything in context. Very important thing. I got several questions on the exact same thing today from the book of Hebrews. You know, well, this verse says that you can lose your salvation. I've been told that salvation is eternal. What is the context? Who is it speaking to? What is it speaking about? Was there a temple? Is there a temple now? What is Paul writing about? All of these things have to be taken in context. 
I say it many, many times during this study, I'll say it again. A verse taken out of context is a pretext, a lie, okay? Keep things in context. Who is the letter being written to? What are they trying to tell you, et cetera, et cetera? Everything has to be kept in context. If you take something out of context, perfect example, take one of the synoptic gospels and say that's pointing to the rapture of the church. It's not, I'm sorry, Jesus never one time in the three synoptic gospels never once addressed the church. He was not speaking to the church. He had not yet been crucified. The apostles themselves had no idea that there was a church coming. I go through this week after week and I still get emails about it. He was speaking to the Jews under the law about the kingdom age, okay? Acts chapter one proves that, their last question to him. I've said that in a sermon a week ago, all right? And then from there, it wasn't until Acts chapter what that he evangelized the first uh, uh, yeah. Gentiles. Ten, thank you. Cornelius. Actually, the Ethiopian eunuch, but Stephen was told to go speak to him. If he wasn't, he never would have gone. Peter was told, go speak to those Gentiles. If he wasn't, he never was gone. Paul was told, you're going to go do these things. And if he wasn't, he never would have gone. Okay? There was no concept of the Gentile church. There was no concept of the Gentile church age. They're thinking kingdom. Okay, so when you read Matthew 24 or anything in the three synoptic gospels, please understand the context. When you're reading the book of Hebrews, understand the context. Who is being written to? Did Paul say that salvation is eternal? Here's a question. Has Paul said that salvation is eternal? Yes. Okay, yes, he did. Okay. Then if it says something that sounds different in the book of Hebrews, you're misunderstanding it. But it even says in the book of Hebrews, guess what? He is the author of? Eternal. eternal salvation. So obviously if he says that and then he says something that's hard for you to understand, don't think that you've been misled about eternal salvation. Ask, why do I not understand this verse? And then start looking at the context. If you don't know it, I've got the commentary online. I'll send it to you as I did twice today. But it's very important to not waffle in your doctrine. The What's doctor's... Um, uh, oh yeah, dispensational model. Here's another one. This is context. I think they could probably see this on the thing. We have dispensations. There are seven dispensations, okay? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. If you take something from here and you apply it over here, it's not gonna work, okay? The dispensations do not mix. Now that's not to say that some of them don't run concurrently. We've talked about that and we'll talk about it again. But as it is, who is being spoken to? Who is being addressed? What is this promise for? What is this dispensation trying to teach us? If you learn these things, it will help you. And that's why we have Bible studies. It's it's just an important thing to uh, to keep things in context always. That's very, very important to do. Anyway, we're gonna evaluate the verse. I'm gonna read it again. It wasn't very different, but a little bit. This is verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, okay, so he's uh, citing Moses. He says, um, and I said Isaiah, but I was looking at chapter 20. You were reading 19, I'm sorry, verse 20. You were reading verse 19. Right. But I say, Israel did not know. First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. Here's my comments on this. Okay, from a general statement about the universality of the going forth of the gospel, Paul now speaks only of, who is he speaking about in this verse? The Jews, thank you, okay? Israel, speaking about them. But I say, did Israel not know? So he's not speaking at all about the Gentiles unless you are a replacement theologian then you insert yourself here and you have completely convoluted theology because they would say, well, of course he's speaking to Israel, but we're Israel. And so now they have to start dividing up what Israel means. 
Okay, Paul never does that. Israel is Israel is Israel. There's no such thing as spiritual Israel or we are the true Israel. Israel is Israel. There is a true Israel, and we talked about that earlier. The true Israel are those Jews who are circumcised in the flesh and in the heart as well. You cannot be considered a true Jew if you're circumcised in the flesh only. We went through that in great detail and talked about if you accompany that with circumcision of the heart, then you're a member of the true Israel. A Gentile will never be a member of the true Israel. Okay, it's just not the way it works. You can convert to Judaism and then you're Israel, but if you're not circumcised in the heart, then you're not the true Israel anyway. So, you know, keep the boxes separate, okay, and keep them to defined very well. Um, so here we go. Um, uh, the question for us to, to consider is, did they not know what? And so we're direct, directed back to verses 16 and 17 of this chapter. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has re- believed our report? Verse 17, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's taking us back there, okay? So, the answer to the question then is twofold. First, it is speaking of the going forth of the gospel, which was then to be heard and accepted. Did Israel not know that the gospel would go forth and thus what the consequences of rejecting it would be? Secondly, it is a question which demands an affirmative answer. Yes, they knew. And they knew it from their own lawgiver, Moses. That's why he's citing Moses. Paul goes back to scripture. Right now, I am evaluating two, uh, yes, uh, one Timothy, two Timothy, okay? And in two Timothy, let me read it to you because I just typed this one up a day ago. It's gonna get posted in a couple days. Let me just read it to you, just so you understand. This pertains directly to what we're talking about right now in Romans. Chapter? Um, Chapter 3, 2 Timothy 3, and he says this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is all scripture? Old and new. Well, not at the time, was it? At the time. At the time, it was just the Old Testament. And yet he says, this will make you complete for every good work. Now, they had the message. They'd heard of Jesus, and that's what they were doing. But where did they go to get their information about Jesus at this time? Other than what the apostles were telling them, they went to the Old Testament. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying that right in their own scriptures, they had this information, right? All scriptures... Uh, inspired by God. Well, at the time, there was only the Old Testament. Now we can take that verse and we can apply it to the New Testament as well, because it was being written at that time, and we know that this is canon. We know that this and this and this and this, these 27 books make the canon of Scripture. But that's not what Paul was referring to when he wrote it. He probably did not realize that his letters, you know, he's writing a letter about a slave to uh, Onesimus, right? Right. Or he's writing about the slave Onesimus to Philemon. Thank you. I saw his face go blank. Anyway, um, so he never would have thought. I'm certain that Paul never thought, I'm writing scripture right here. And no idea. He's just writing a letter begging for his friend. But now we have that as a part of scripture. Okay, so once again, keep things in context. What is on Paul's mind as he is telling these people these things? Okay, so here we go. Um, they went back to their own scriptures, the lawgiver Moses, in order to justify what he has just said. First, Moses says, indicates that the very basis 
of who they were, meaning Israel, as a people, the Torah, which was received and then passed on to them by Moses, hints at the truth of this situation. In support of this, Paul cites Deuteronomy 32, verse 21. I'm going to take you there, and we're just going to compare it to what Paul says here. Deuteronomy 32, hang on here, 21. It says, uh, 21. They have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. But I will provoke them to jealousy by those who are not a nation. I will move them to anger by a foolish nation. Who's he speaking about? This is back at the time of Moses. He's speaking about right now, right now in human history, that the nation, which is the called out group of Gentiles, we are a nation unto ourselves, even though we're a part of nations all over the world, we are the people that are to provoke Israel to jealousy. All right, that is who he's speaking about. Israel had provoked the Lord by what is not God, this is a prophecy by Moses. It's the song of Moses. Uh, yeah, the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. All right, and he made this prophecy. So it says, uh, and therefore he would provoke them by what is a no people. Okay, and so it is. The message of Jesus Christ cannot be claimed by a single group of people. No nation has authority over it. I'm sorry, the Catholic Church does not have authority over the Word of God. It does not have authority over the Church. Okay, no nation has authority over it, nor does, despite frequent claim, claims to the contrary, any single denomination. When the Jehovah's Witness says we are the true church, how do you tell them? What's the, what's the one thing that you should tell them to show them that they're wrong? Because they say we are the true church. Well, which letter to, uh, which of the seven letters in Revelation are you talking about? Because he's writing seven letters to seven different, seven different churches, right? Okay, anybody that says that we are the true church is not the true church. Jesus is making seven letters to seven churches and they all are completely different. He's picking seven churches that are actually there in that area in East Asia, right? He's picking them as examples of the seven churches throughout the church age. Each one of them has its own dysfunction, each one has its own problem, each one has its own whatever, okay? So if you want to refute somebody like the Catholic Church or the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, which aren't even a church, but if they say they are, you just say, well, he wrote this to seven churches. Which one are you speaking about? It doesn't make any sense if you think it through. So um, nobody has uh, authority over it, no sect, no denomination, no Church of England, right? Mm -hmm. Well, you got the Church of Germany, which is the Lutheran Church. You got all these churches and they say that we're, we're following the true gospel. It's like when people say, you will always hear this when people start a new church. What will they say about their approach to starting the church? I bet I've heard this 50 times, people starting a new church. They say, we are going back to the original church. We're going back to the original church, and we're going to use the original model. And guess what? There is no original model in Scripture. There's no set denomination. There is no set original model in Scripture. That's why we have elder-led churches, congregational-led churches. We've got, you know, deacon-led churches and this and that and one thing and another because there is no set model. Some people say, well, the set model was uh, having house churches. We'll go have it in a house, but it doesn't match what they have in the Bible here or here or here or here. They're all different, right? In the Old Testament, what was the people of God as far as their religious focus? What was it that 
The what? Temple. The temple. And every single, yeah, or tabernacle, every single item in that temple to the very finest detail was described. This is what you're going to make, and this is how you're going to make it. The priest is going to do this at this time of the day. He's going to do this at this time of the day. He's going to sacrifice this animal on this day of the month or on this day of the year. Every single detail was de was defined. Every detail. There was one worship, and that was all that was allowed, and then they went out and did their own thing anyway. But in the church, there is no set worship. Not a day of the week. I got into, some people emailed me and said, why are you following the, the wicked Catholic Sunday church this past week? And I went back and I said, you know, it's like when you start by accusing me of something, you're not going to get a nice email back. I'm sorry, that's all there is to it. I'm not going to be friendly with you when you come to me and you say that I'm doing something that isn't scriptural. And I went back and I showed them in the verse and they said, well, you can quote verses all day long, but you're... That's what verses are for. What does it say in Romans? One person uh, 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 esteems one day above another, and some, some esteem every day alike. Let each man be confirmed in his own mind, right? There's no set day of worship within the church. All of these little side pet peeves that people get into, I guarantee you, if it's a pet peeve, it is not in the Bible. It is something you have inserted into your theology, and it is incorrect. Don't do that. There is no Catholic conspiracy about the first day of the week. When did John, in Revelation, go and petition the Lord's face? When was he in the Spirit? The Lord's on the Lord's Day. What is the Lord's Day? The Sunday. Day it's the, the first day of the week. That's right. Okay. They met on the first day of the week throughout the New Testament. All right. They also met on Sabbath. I'm not going to dispute that. But when did he meet on Sabbath? We did this in the book of Acts. Where did he go on Sabbath? Uh, to the Jewish synagogue. That's right. That's where they went, or to the temple if they were back in Jerusalem. Right. All right, when they were out among the Gentiles, they met whenever, wherever, and usually it was on the first day of the week that he would tell them to do it. Okay? Well, Paul uh, said when you come together on the first day of the week. Yeah, when you come together on the first day of the week, and then, of course, it becomes, well, that's not what the original says, and it's been changed by the Catholic Church, and it is what the, first, what the original says. You have to look at the Greek, and we went through that in the book of Acts. I'm not going to go through it now, but the term is very clear that it's the first day of the week. Anyway, it, this is people that have been taught something and have not gone and checked it out. But we meet here on the Lord's Day because we honor what? The Lord. The Lord, right? We're not under the law. We don't honor the law. We are not in anticipation of the coming Christ. We are worshiping the risen Christ who has come. He came. He did his work. He's finished in him. Hebrews 4, 3, we do rest. We find our rest in him. Okay? So, once again, all of these little things that you have in your mind, if it's a pet peeve, it's probably wrong. Don't have your pet peeves direct your theology. Let the Bible direct your theology. Okay, so um, this is uh, the gospel is found anywhere and in any person who will honor the true God through Jesus Christ. That is how we honor God, is through Jesus Christ. All of these other things are not set. They are not defined. There's no set. Isaac Watts, do you remember when he was writing his hymns and we all listened to him? He was barbecued by people. Why? Does anybody know the story? because they only wanted Davidic Psalms. They didn't want anybody writing hymns. That's heresy, right? And now every church in the world uses Isaac Watts. And then somebody throws in a guitar and all of a sudden he's a heretic because you can't use music. And you get all of these things that have no basis in this word, no basis. If it's a pet peeve, it is, I guarantee you, wrong, okay? It has to be found in scripture or it is something that you've just 
Oh, be careful with this. Okay, the reason why I'm excited about this is because I really dislike emails like that. I really do. When yes, somebody comes at you and they say that, you know, oh, you're, you're such a great heretic. guy and we love you, but you're doing this and this. It's like, oh I, please don't do that. I, I, you're, all you're going to do is get an argument back and rebuke a, a divi divisive man once, rebuke him a second time, and then have nothing to do with them. I get a second email. I'm not going to go through with it again. I, I just am done. Okay, I, I don't need to argue with people over this. If you have a question, I'll answer it. And if you don't agree with it, then don't agree. That's fine. But going back and forth and telling me why you think is irrelevant. The only thing that matters is what the Bible says Amen. in context. Okay, so we'll go on. Um, through this no nation, this is the no nation that Moses has been speaking about, which is in fact a collective group under a single headship, Jesus Christ, God will provoke Israel to jealousy. That is the purpose of having the Gentile church called out. Did they listen the first time when they were exiled? Absolutely not, because they're obviously not in Jerusalem right now. They're not in favor with the Lord. Well, they are now, but I'm talking about for 2,000 years. Yeah. They do not have a temple. They're not right with the Lord. They've got gay mayors in Jerusalem, right? They've got all of these things that they're doing that are not in accord with God's word, which is what is supposed to be the foundation of their society. Okay, so obviously they're not right with the Lord. They're going to go through seven more years of trying to work it out under that umbrella. It's not going to work. They're going to get into a very bad pickle. Two-thirds of them are going to die, and then they're going to say, we need Jesus. This is, this is the outline. This is the outline of the Bible that is coming. Okay, so he will move them to anger by a foolish nation, Paul says. The word fool is used in various ways to indicate a lack of understanding, but also one who denies God. Anybody know where that is? It's in Psalm 14 verse 1 and Psalm 35 verse 1. He repeats it the same thing. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Thank you. There's no God. All right. Or one that refuses sound instruction or is morally corrupt. So you can have a fool in different contexts in the Bible, such as in the Proverbs. Somebody who is morally corrupt, um, what's his name? Uh, uh, Solomon calls them a fool. Now, Jesus said, call no man full okay how do you deal with that that guy's obviously a fool how do you know because the Bible's already told us if somebody says I'm an atheist and you call them a fool you're not violating Jesus words God called him a fool you're simply just and guess what Jesus was saying that under the law to Israel but it's irrelevant even if it applied to us it doesn't matter because the Bible has already defined who a fool is Okay, so once again, keep things in context. If God has called somebody a fool because of their morally corrupt position or because of their, their lack of a belief in God, then you're free to call him a fool because you are repeating the Lord's words, not your own. If you're calling somebody a fool because of your own pet peeve against that person, then you may be sinning, right? Because the Lord says, don't call people a fool, whatever. Okay, so, but as I said, that's under, that's in the Synoptic Gospels. It was given for a particular reason. He was making an, an example, but even if you don't call somebody a fool, if the Bible does, you can. Okay, that's the point I'm making. So let's go on. Um, uh, let's see here. In this context, it is being sp spoken of, the word foolish, as a nation of people who had no revelation or perceptive knowledge of the true God. And remember now, this is a nation that had the oracles of God. They had them for 1,500 years, and yet Paul is ascribing it to them because Moses ascribed it to him and yet they've completely missed who the true God is because Jesus is the fulfillment of what they were given, right? 
So they have no perceptive knowledge of who the true God is, even though that is in their oracles. Until they come to Christ, the scriptures that they have are, what is it? A veil. They're blinded. Absolutely. Every time Moses is read, they put on a veil. It covers their eyes. Okay. From this, no people, that means the church, completely inferior in the understanding of God, would come Israel's provocation to jealousy and movement to anger. Peter speaks of such a nation in his first epistle. He says in uh, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, but you are a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The reason for this provocation and movement is obvious. It's not to shame them into condemnation, but to spur them towards salvation. Now first, who was Peter writing to there? He was writing to the Jews. So he's speaking of the Jewish believers in Israel, but it's still a part of the body that has accepted Messiah. Okay, I want to make sure that you, we have the right context. The Jews or the Gentile church is supposed to provoke the Israel to jealousy. And guess what? Many, many Jews are coming to Christ now. And they, within their nation, should be doing the same thing. And that's who Peter is speaking to. The Jews of the end times who are coming to Christ who are to be that special people, that royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. But it's the same Lord who is rich over all. Okay? The reason for this provocation and movement is obvious. It is not to shame them into condemnation, but to spur them towards salvation. Paul will continue to cite this line of thought concerning Israel's disobedience throughout the coming verses. Now, thinking of what we've just talked about, what I've read to you, and about the verse, can we in any way place ourselves into that verse and say this is speaking about us? Absolutely not. There's no way. And so once again, Israel is Israel, the church is the church. Paul is not saying, well, in this verse, we're Israel, and in this verse, we're not Israel. He's not doing that. He's saying that this group of people is Israel. All right? Paul then will show that the intended effect of God will eventually be realized in Israel. As this hasn't happened to Israel as a nation yet, as we know, then it must be, despite praetorous claims to the contrary, future to us now. Praetorists say that Israel is out, and Paul right here shows us that Israel isn't out. That far from it. This is something that must happen because the Word of God says it happens, and so praetorists that say that we've replaced Israel, that all prophecy is fulfilled, are completely wrong because they are taking things out of context because of their presuppositions about who Israel is. It's incorrect. How did praetorist get its name? Uh, before things, Praetor, okay? okay. Uh, yeah, so, uh, or uh, Praetor. Um, anyway, so what it means is that it, it's all been done, okay? They're Praetorists because they believe that all prophecy is done, it's fulfilled, and all they're waiting for is Jesus to return. Or if you're what's called a hyper-Praetorist, then Jesus is already turned. He returned in A.D. 70, and we're ushering in the kingdom age for him. Okay, which really seems effective over the yes. past 2,000 years, not doesn't it? Good. So, uh, yeah, but that's what they believe and that's what they teach and you're not gonna change their minds, but this is why we go through Bible studies is to hear their side of the view and to hear another side and you determine which is correct. I've never heard of, I've never known anybody to be a hyper. Well, hyper praetors is very rare, but they're it out there. Really yeah, it's, it's a heresy, I've talked about that. Remember, the reason why we know it's a heresy is because we take the Lord's Supper. Right. Remember I said right. that? Right. And the Lord's Supper says we proclaim his death 
until he comes, right? So praetorism isn't necessarily a heresy. They believe the Lord is coming back. They just have got it all wrong about Israel and about future prophecy. But a hyper-praetorist is a heretic. Yeah. Okay. So we have um, uh, Israel will behold the splendor of the Lord, call on him, and become the nation to whom Christ will return some wondrous day in the future. That's my recommendation to you. Life application, does Israel of today merit God's blessing? No, no of course not. Doesn't merit it at all because grace is unmerited favor, okay? But God has returned them for his reasons and they are being worked out despite their failing to acknowledge him. So they're getting grace which they do not deserve, all right? That's just the way of the world, and people don't want to see that, because if they are God's people, then guess what? Our theology for the past 2,000 years has been wrong. And where do I go with that? So they just blindly shut down, and they say, the Jews are out, and we're going to take care of this problem. It's going to be the final, final solution, and when that's done, then we won't have this problem anymore. The world is going to that point very quickly, okay? When one fights against Israel, they fight against God's plans for Israel and thus they fight against God. That's right. That's why I support Israel, even though I don't agree with Israel. I don't agree with their policies. I don't agree with the things they're doing, but I support them because God has sovereignly placed them back in there. God has a plan for this group of people. If I fight against that plan as the World Council of Churches does, then I'm fighting against God. I wouldn't want to do that. That'd be as crazy as a football bat. We don't want to do that. So think that one through and then determine to stand with support and pray for Israel. That's what old Caiaphas said. Wasn't it Caiaphas said if we were going to be fighting against God? If we, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. No, it wasn't Caiaphas that no, said it. was Gamaliel. Gamaliel and uh, Acts. Caiaphas said that if one person is to die for the nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. You got the right person, just the wrong quote. Okay. So, um, 1020. Here we go. And Isaiah boldly says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who do not ask for me. Okay, but is given to contrast the preceding verse. He was speaking of Israel and God's need to provoke them to jealousy and move them to anger. These actions would be affected by those who were not a nation and by a foolish nation. Unlike Israel who would reject him, Paul cites Isaiah 65 verse one to show directly from scripture that in the process of doing this, the Gentiles would actually come to the Lord and find the Lord that the Jews had rejected. I mean, he cites, I'm just gonna read it here because it's, it's a cite from Isaiah. He says, I was found by those who did not seek me. Was the Gentile world seeking a Messiah? No, there was no, no idea of who a Messiah was. Now, if they had paid attention to Genesis chapter three, then they would have known that a Messiah was coming and some cultures did understand that for a point but eventually that became ingrained only in the Jewish people. Now, there are groups of people in the world today that are looking for their own Messiah. They would call him the Mahdi, and in, uh, back to the beginning, there's this, this thing that's been promised, and you know how folklore grows and things get diverted, so God has protected the idea of the Messiah, which is in Genesis chapter three, through this one group of people. So when I asked earlier, 
was the Gentile looking world looking for the Messiah? The answer is no, because they weren't looking for the one that God is describing, who he has maintained in his oracles and given all of these pictures of him along the way. That's why I'm asking, okay? Yes, people are looking for Messiah figures all the time, but they were not looking for Christ the Messiah. They were not looking for somebody that would come and die on a cross, resurrect, and say, I will take care of your sin problem. They weren't looking for that, okay? And that is what Israel should have been looking for. That's what they should have been anticipating, but they weren't. They missed it in their scriptures, okay? They wanted a king to rule. They wanted a king to rule. That's absolutely right. So we have um, Isaiah 65, 1 shows them that the Jews had rejected them, but the Gentiles had called on him. To show the force of this, he says, Isaiah is very bold, using the Greek word apolotoma, a word used only here in the New Testament. It has the intent of someone who dares another. His statement was one which could arouse his readers to anger, but he stated it anyway, and he states it with bold confidence. Now, in his citation of Isaiah, Paul switches the order of the verse. In Isaiah 65, verse 1, it says, that did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. Okay, here it says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. The reason for this change must certainly be the nature of the gospel message. It is given to people who aren't seeking God, and they suddenly become aware of who he is. They find him without having sought him. When they find him, he is made manifest to them, even though they didn't ask for him. This is sure because the term, I was sought, is replaced with, I, made, I was made manifest. Also, the term, I was found, was written by Isaiah in the present tense, I am sought. However, Paul is writing it as a completed action, I was found. So he's not changing scripture, he's showing that it's fulfilled in Christ, all right? And he's showing the logical order in which it occurred in the Gentiles, okay? Isaiah looked forward to the time when the gospel would be given to and accepted by the Gentile people. Now Paul shows that the time has arrived. In both cases, from Isaiah and from Paul, this would have been an offensive message to the Jews. But despite this, they both boldly proclaimed the gospel. Okay, Moses proclaimed the gospel, and then Paul proclaimed the gospel. Life application. The message of Jesus is offensive. All right, when people say, I don't want to offend. Somebody emailed me a little while ago, and it doesn't matter who or where it was, but he emailed me, and he said, I, I may have said that in this class. He said that, oh, I did. It was about not wanting to take communion on Easter because he didn't want to offend anybody that might be visiting the church. Did I say that here? No, okay. Well, he, he emailed me this, and he said, what do you think about that? And I said, the entire gospel message is an offense. Mm -hmm. I mean, what are you going to do? Say Jesus didn't die on a cross for you just so you don't offend? The entire thing is, is crazy. People just want to, we want to get rid of the cross. We don't want to have the communion. We don't want to talk about sin. Pretty soon you've got nothing at all. Yeah, so you, you've just got a, a club where you go and listen to how good the week is going to be. So you just don't get it. Anyway, the, the gospel message is offensive. And guess what? John 14, 6 is offensive. It's a statement which shows the harsh reality of rejecting Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no man comes to the Father but through me. You say that to somebody that doesn't believe in Jesus, and guess what? They are going to be offended. That's right. They're going to be. It doesn't matter. That is what the Bible says, and if that's what you believe, then you have to tell people that fact. 
That's what you need to do, okay? So, uh, let's see here, John 14, 6. No person can be reconciled to God apart from Jesus. John 3, 18, likewise, is offensive. <laughs> All people are condemned already. Are you willing to be as bold as Isaiah and proclaim a message which is so unpopular? If so, God will be pleased with your stand. His word takes precedence over the hurt feelings of others. And I know I said Moses a second ago. I said Moses and Paul. I meant Isaiah and Paul. Anyway, I just, I say things without getting them squared in my brain. Sometimes I'll call Peter Paul and Paul Peter. If I do that, just, just correct me or ignore it. I don't care. So I, yes. back to the uh, offensiveness, it would cause envy and Oh yeah, anger, envy, and, and anger, which is exactly yeah, that's exactly right. So you know, but that's what we do. We we can't equivocate on the meaning of words when it comes to the gospel in particular. Yes, uh, a good comment that I heard if somebody says I'm offended. Yeah. Say, well, I'm sorry. I'm you know I stepped on your toes, but I was just trying to touch your heart and your mind. There, that's a good one. That's I good sorry one. I stepped on your toes, but that's I was just one. trying to touch your heart and mind. Very good. Or you could say, uh, if it's not about Jesus, then you could say, well, your offense offends me. You just be done with it. I, you know, that's what I tell people. And they say, well, that's offensive. I say, well, guess what? Your offensive offends me. I'm offended that you're offended by this because this is what I believe. You just throw it back on them. And it's provable. And it's provable. There you go. 1021. But concerning Israel, he says... All day long, I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. Okay, this one says disobedient and contrary, but it's the same thing, okay? Paul closes chapter 10. I can't believe we're done with chapter 10 already. Uh, unreal. Closes chapter 10 with a quote from Isaiah 65, verse 2, okay? But shows the contrast to the preceding verse. I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. This is the no nation, remember, no people, no nation, to whom the Lord was made manifest. The Gentile people who weren't even a part of the covenant community, in contrast to them, Israel is now highlighted. Once again, can we take Israel and put them into this picture, or can we take the Jews, and fight, in other words, the Gentiles, and vice versa, swap them up? There's no way. that He's made very clear distinctions here. All right? We are the people that he's speaking about. He says that... I was found by those who did not seek me. Any person in the church, and I mean anybody that you ask, I don't care if they're a Calvinist or if they're, they're gonna say, well, that's speaking of us, the church. And then you say, well, then who is it speaking to in verse 21? And they say, well, that was back then, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. we're Israel now. Paul doesn't do that, and this word is forever. This is our church doctrine during this age. We don't say that pertain, People will do that with long hair on men in 1 Corinthians, and they'll say, well, that was cultural. That was the Corinthian culture. And they try to make it cultural, and then what do you have? You've got no word at all. It doesn't pertain to us, so just don't read the book of 1 Corinthians, right? There's a reason why Paul was saying that. We'll be in 1 Corinthians soon enough, and we can talk all about the hair all you want, but let me ask you something. Was John the Baptist a, um, what do you call it, Nazarite from birth? He was set apart from birth. Okay, what does that mean? He never cut his hair. He never cut his hair. Did John the Baptist have long hair? He had to. He had to have had long hair. He had real long hair. Think it through, people. When Paul is saying something, he's giving it to us for a reason. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and all of them before it and all of them after it, 
all pertain to the church age. It's not a cultural thing that's over. People tried that when I talk about, every time I talk about 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, well, 1 Timothy, yeah, where it says the woman is not to teach or have authority over men. I always get an email, well, that's cultural. That only pertained to Ephesus, and they were having, they insert all kinds of things that aren't in the Bible in there because they don't want to hear that. It's not cultural. That is, this is our writing for the church age. Everything that is written is there for a reason. So when we say here in Romans chapter 10 that this is the church and that this is Israel, it doesn't change 2,000 years later. It doesn't change, okay? And the reason why I keep bringing in all these side issues is because they all pertain to one bigger issue. This is the Word of God. It pertains to us, but you have to keep it in context. The Synoptic Gospels are written for a certain reason to a certain group of people. We've got the, you know, what book is this here? That's, uh, I can't read it. Isaiah was written at a certain time to a certain group of people, but when he writes it, he's writing prophecy that actually includes us. It has to be taken in context, okay? So, let's go on. Um, let's see here. The no nation to whom the Lord was made manifest, the Gentile people weren't even a part of the covenant community. In contrast to them, Israel. Israel's now highlighted. God had, as he says, stretched out his hands all day long to them. They had his laws, they had the temple, they had the covenant care, they had the protection and the history which they could look back on as evidence of God's hand of care upon them. And yet he says they were a disobedient and contrary people. They had every possible chance to be given the word of the Lord, to carry the word of the Lord, to secure the word of the Lord. And how do we know that this is true, that they were disobedient and contrary? Because they still are. Somebody thought that went through very quickly. Doctor, that was really well done. I'm telling you, because they still are. They have the exact same word today, and then they have the exact same word today after their second exile, but with more books after the second exile. There's a couple more prophetic books in there. But they have the exact same word from the same God, and they are still obstinate, and they are still contrary, and they are still disobedient. The chosen for what is what you have to ask yourself. When you see a group of people that is living entirely disobedient to this word, and they say we're the chosen people, all you need to do is say, chosen for what? Chosen for what? Well, we're God's special people. Well, you're living contrary to the word that says that you're God's chosen people. How can that be? Right? That's the most beautiful question in the world, which he said to me years ago, and I've been saying it ever since. Chosen for what? If you're chosen for something, and it was by God who wrote this, then there has to be a joining of the two. It can't just be that God said this, and he chose you here, and these are two separate ideas. That's why you've been in exile for 2,000 years, and that's why you are still being hemmed in by your enemies. I neighbor, she's moved now, the Jewish woman. Oh, yes. If we're the chosen, why are we having so much problem? Yeah, why are we having so much problem? <laughs> yeah, we had a wonderful Jewish man here in church on Sunday. He loves the Lord, he evangelizes Jews, and he knows why they've gone through all that trouble. He sat through a sermon which spoke directly to, to Leviticus 26. Why are they exiled and why are they going to be reinstated? He didn't get up and walk out. He agreed with it because he understands that despite being the chosen people, they are disobedient and contrary to the Lord. And then I added in the caveat that so are we. You know, we're the church and we're not living for them. We're ordaining homosexuals and we're doing this and we're doing that. It's no different. They're just being used as a microcosm of a bigger picture. Okay, so anyway, even from the earliest moments after the giving of the law, and we know this is true because it's written here, they were in rebellion against him. They had seen the miraculous, having been delivered from Egypt by the 10 plagues. 
They then saw it again in the pillar, in the cloud, in the parting of the sea. A short time later, they beheld the glory of the Lord at Mount Sinai as they received the law. And yet during the entire time, they complained. Soon enough, they were in gross violation of the law that they were given when they set up and worshiped a golden calf. Still up there doing his thing, and they're down here worshiping something that the Lord had told them with his own voice, so much so that they said, don't speak to us, don't let the Lord speak to us anymore, or we'll die. Let him speak to you, and we'll pay attention. The words that he spoke out to them that were so frightening that they asked him not to speak, they were violating, mm -hmm. right? So, right from the very inception. And on the record of disobedience, it continues throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Turn a page, disobedience. Turn a page, disobedience. It goes all the way through. Occasionally, a good judge or a good king would come along and set them on a good path. But in short span, all you need to do is turn one more page. They would again turn from the Lord. All day long, Paul's words, all day long is a way of saying throughout the duration or without ceasing, God stretched out his hands to them. This is a term which gives a sense of almost begging. I've got my hand out to you all day long. I'm doing this. I'm exercising my arms, trying to get you to come back to me. He pled with them. And remember what it says when they disobeyed me? He says, I'm not going to come to you anymore in the book of Judges. I'm not going to defend you. And they wept openly, and the Lord's heart couldn't handle it. And he turned, and he, okay. You know, it's like you've got this, this relationship which is going on. I love you, we love you, but we're not going to obey you. And it's just, the, it, the whole thing is just so sad through Scripture, is that, but we see it even to this day. We see it even to this day. All right. Okay, so he's almost begging, please pay heed. Return to me, and I will return to you. Rather than responding, they remained rebellious, disobedient, and contrary to what he expected of them. This last verse then shows why, speaking of the last verse of this chapter, why their rejection came, and it explains why the message of salvation through Christ was thus turned to and accepted by the Gentiles, as is noted in the previous verses. What was offered as a gift of grace was shunned by the very same people who had, for so many centuries, shunned him already. In is this the end of the story for Israel then? If you're a praetorist, yes, they're out. Okay, but we've already showed that there are categories and it can't be so. But you ask, is this the end? Did they turn so far from God that they would never again receive his favor? Chapter 11 will continue on with Paul's thoughts on his beloved people, his countrymen according to the flesh. Life application, God is merciful and long-suffering but there is a point when he knows it is no longer of use to stretch out his hands to those who turn away from him or shun him. And this is certainly true even with saved believers who fail to walk in a worthy manner of his greatness. We need to evaluate our walk with the Lord continuously and ensure that we are living in accord with his precepts. Okay? It's just the way it is. The Lord is long-suffering, but he is not going to continue to allow his name to be blasphemed. Okay? Verse 11, one, oh, this is the final of the three Israel sections. You know, what is the status of Israel? Are they out? Chapter 11 will give us more information on that. Go ahead. Before I start, yep. does anyone remember what date we started Romans? I have no idea. About three months ago or four months ago? I don't know. <laughs> June 30th, 2016. 
June 30th, 26th. Wow. So it's been two years. Okay. Did you but, say a couple months ago? Whatever. <laughs> but, you know, but you got to figure we've only been in here an hour and a half a week. So, and sometimes we stop 10 minutes early to have pizza, right? Yeah, that's so, killed us right Yeah. So if you think about it, we've really been breezing through it quickly. It's not like Acts, which took us a little bit longer. Anyway, go ahead. Okay. The remnant of Israel. I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Okay, wonderful stuff there. He's, he's setting up his argument for Israel. Okay, he's not setting up his argument for the church. He's speaking about Israel. Israel. Okay, yes. Throughout the church age, there have been differing views on the state of the Jewish people. Okay, there was an expectancy of the Jews turning to God. That was expected, but they didn't. In AD 70, the temple was destroyed and the Jews were dispersed. As time went on, it seemed more and more unlikely that Israel would ever be a people again. The land fell in and out of enemies' hands, but for the most part, it was a barren wilderness, unsuitable to support life in any real sense. We know this, okay? This continued through the 1800s, as is well documented by, by, oh, 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 ah. Mark, Twain. Thank you. Mark Twain, okay, in the accounts of his travels, Innocence Abroad. Okay. Yeah, he's reading, but he was waiting for you. He saw you getting excited. And, yeah. Okay. You can read if you have never read Innocence Abroad. It's time that you do. It won't take you long. It's a very short book. You will laugh. You, you, you will howl laugh. Yeah, you will laugh. So he reads it and he laughs out loud as he's yes. reading it. It's a very funny book, but he describes right in the part where he's going through the Holy Land what the land is like. I gave it in a sermon. If you didn't watch Leviticus 26, starting in verse 10, I think it was, with the curses on Israel, I opened the first five minutes of it reading out of Innocence Abroad, and it was sobering, okay? Very sobering passage. You can read it online. Just type in Innocence Abroad, and colleges all over have it. Okay, so you can just read it here without excuse. So um, around the world, the Jews were here and there in little pockets. We've mentioned that in the sermon this past week. I cited John Gill and I cited Adam Clark. And they both had faith that Israel would be back in the land. Even while all the other scholars out there were saying it's never going to happen, the Jews are out, we've replaced them. These people that actually picked up their Bible and read it and studied it like no other people of their time understood that Israel was not out. And, and they made took it, it for what it They was. took it for it what it says. That's right. Not what we think. They took it exactly just for what it is. And they gave their analysis, and it's very clear what they believed hundreds and hundreds of years ago, back in the 1700s and early 1800s. So around the world, the Jews are in little pockets, but they were doing their own thing. And no one could have guessed that they would ever reunite as a group of people. The many promises of the Old Testament are, which are very specific and certainly earthly promises to Israel were what? They were spiritualized by the church and it was inserted, the church was inserted into these passages. The reason for this is obvious, okay? If this is God's word, okay, right? We're all in the church and we say, well, this is God's word and we're sitting here in 1700 and we say, we know that this is God's word, but there's a problem. If we know that God's word is truthful, then these things must belong to the church. Israel's a goner, right? There, there's no Israel, there's no land that's habitable. The people are, there's 20 of them here, there's 2,000 of them here, and there's a couple of them over there, but they're never gonna reunite, never gonna happen. They all speak different languages. 
There's no commonality between them other than the funny things they wear and the weird beards and hats, but that's never gonna happen. And so they had to do something. This is the word of God. We know it's true. And it says all of these wonderful things in the Old Testament, what are we gonna do? We're Israel. It's logical, even though it doesn't really fit. As he said, there were a couple of scholars that actually just said, this says this and it must be true. But the rest of the people thought, well, that can't be true because, and they spiritualized and it. That's where this came it. from. Well, that's what I said. Yeah, I did that on the board that right. one time. Here's why they thought that. You can't blame them because I guarantee you that if we were back then living in that time, in this class, if every one of us read the Bible every single day, there might be one of us that would have come to the conclusion that John Gill or that Adam Clark did because they were lone voices out there. Right. So as he said, you can't blame these people. You can't. But people want to, because here we are in 2018, there's an Israel and they've got all this military power and it's obvious that God's hand is upon them, right? So we can smugly say that they were so stupid back then. But what we can do, what we can do is say how dumb replacement theology is today. today right. That's right. We can't do it for 100 or 200 years ago. But for the people that are still clinging to this theology today, we can say that is really not a smart way of looking at the world. It is, it is very unintelligent if you think of it. It's people that will not accept God's, God's word at his word. Yeah, anyway. Charlie, yes. don't you think that God instilled Zionism into the Jews? 100%. Right in 1800. What? and few of the others. 100%. The uh, Yehuda. Ben Yehuda. In 1873. Yep. To get the pure language. The language again. back to get the people back there, every bit of it, but that was instilled in them. And it's more than just God instilling it in the Jews. There's a lot more involved in that. Here you have a group of people that for 2,000 years have said the same thing every Passover. Next year in Jerusalem. The time wasn't ready. Okay, they didn't have the travel capability. They were being persecuted because God said, remember Leviticus 26, we're gonna, by the sword, we're gonna do this. So it wasn't just the Zionist movement. It was, and I'm talking about the Jewish Zionist movement. It was more than that. It was Christian Zionist movement because now we have the ability to travel more easily. We have the ability to defend more easily. Remember I read you from uh, Napoleon who was in in the land and he said, come back Jews, I'm, I've got this place for you and it wasn't yet time. So people wanted to have this, but there was a time when it could happen. The Christians started to read the Bible literally. I would say it was probably more a work of spirit in the Christians than it was in the Jews. He always had it in the Jewish heart to return back. But the Christians were the ones that were really, I believe the impetus behind it. They started supporting the Jews going back to the land. You have the Balfour Declaration, all of these things that brought about their ability to go back. But I think they always wanted to go back. They were just forbidden by the Lord. And as it says, I will chase you with the sword to the ends of the earth. He was going to do it until his plan for them was done. But Theodore Herzl, he always wanted to go back. And Ben Yehuda, you know, he wanted to go where? He didn't want to go first to Israel. Where did he want to go? He was going to come here to America, right? But his health wouldn't allow him. Sounds like a chance of God. And when he got back in the Holy Land, he said to his wife, we're not going to speak anything but Hebrew, biblical Hebrew ever again. Wow. And that was how it started by one guy saying, we're just going, we're in the land. We might as well take advantage of it. But the Lord worked these things out over a successive amount of time and through different various ways to start regathering them in. And as I said, I think it's, they've always wanted to go back, but I think it's more externally right. pushing them back and, in. And, and how you know that that external push is also a hand of God is that the League of Nations oh, yes. is who 
gave them back their land. That's right. Legally. The League of Nations and were there. look at the UN, which is what... Completely opposed to them. It's like they would rather yeah, skim forward. Completely opposed to them. Agreement in 1923. Yep. Each one of these things was a step. Each thing. Sixty-two nations signed for them to have that land. Have that land. That's right. So all of this was a step, one step after another, until and now we're into the pickle we're in. All predicted here or prophesied here in the Bible. So one way or another, you can see how these things have come about. But going back to replacement theology, they were not with. They, they kind of had an excuse. Israel is out, we are in, okay? But ancient pictures and prophecies clearly showed that Israel, the people, would be returned to Israel, the land, okay? Gonna spiritualize that, but it clearly shows this. This is seen from Genesis all the way through Malachi, and some prophecies such as Ezekiel 4, which wasn't known until after it occurred, but it actually pinpoints the dating of this occurrence. I did that in prophecy uh, update number 88, go back and watch it. In the late 1800s, this became so obvious to Bible scholars that in advance, in advance of Israel's reestablishment, it was understood that this was coming. The 19th century scholar E.W. Bullinger actually noted the number of years until this would come about. The only thing he lacked was the starting date of what the calculation should be. But he knew it was going to happen, and he knew it in advance of it happening. The world was being prepared both physically and spiritually for the return of the people Israel to Israel the land. The Zionist movement, the reestablishment of the ancient language, the events of World War I, which we just talked about, and World War II, and the discovery of Dead the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's two for you. You're going to get a chocolate bar after one more. <laughs> the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. On and on. The miraculous time was at hand. And then... On 14 May 1948, it came. Israel was reestablished. 19 years later, on 7 June of 1967, Jerusalem once again came under Jewish control. Now, I've heard the story. I can't say that this is true, but I've heard it, and I, it, I have no reason to dispute it from the source that I heard it from, is that Ben-Gurion, David Ben-Gurion, was there getting ready to turn on the switch to make the announcement to the world that the nation was reestablished and that they were in the land and they were declaring their sovereignty, right? And they were still debating, what are we going to call it? We're going to call it the Zionist, blah, blah, blah. We're going to call it the land of David. They were talking about it and finally says, it's time. We've got to make a decision. Turned on the microphone and said, the land of Israel is reestablished as a nation. Even that was prophesied by the Bible. These things are obvious now, but, Paul, but at Paul's time and for the next 2,000 years, difficult questions were asked. Misunderstanding Romans chapter 11, although, and I said this a minute ago, and here it is, although inexcusable from a biblical standpoint, is almost understandable from a historical standpoint. The fact is, few people had access to a Bible, and those that did were mostly focused on other things. When the publication of the book took off and people really started digging into its contents, suddenly things started to become clear. Now that Israel is back in the land, one would think that everyone would agree on her role. You would just look at the world and you'd say, look, this and this equals this, right? You would think that. Well, at least everyone who was a Bible believer would yeah. believe it, right? That's true. Well, maybe not. Such isn't the case. To this day, one's early training on the issue of Israel will normally stand. If they are taught from the old school mindset, then this is what they are going to believe. 
how many times do I cite that man that I loved that's now dead, who absolutely thinks that we are the Jews and we've replaced <laughs> them, and yet it's as obvious as the nose on his face or his one's face, right? If they are taught from the old school mindset, that's what they're going to believe. One must actually put aside presuppositions and allow the word to be mixed with reality that is around us. Israel is home and it is not an aberration. God is working towards the fulfillment of all of the promises previously made to them. The world is being prepared for the return of the Messiah in the establishment of the kingdom age. Paul gives us hints into this in Romans chapter 11. He begins chapter 11 with an obvious question, one based on the closing quotes from chapter 10. I say then is a way of his, uh, his way of getting us to think through what will be asked. In essence, if this is so, then what about? He is acting as if the defendant in a trial concerning Israel's stubborn rejection of God's provision found in Christ. The question is, has God cast his people away? Has he done so? His people is speaking of who? The Jews. It's speaking of Israel. He even identifies it in this verse. From, uh, 31 okay. and 33. Yeah. Specifically, speaking. specifically it does. That's right. So he says um, his people is speaking of Israel. This is obvious from the preceding verses and from the defense he is going to make in the coming verses. Has God cast them away? The word for cast is apasoto, away from, thrust, hence to thrust away. Has Israel been pushed out of the biblical scene, never to return? Paul's emphatic answer is, yes, they're out forever. May it no, never be. may it never be. He says, certainly not. To support this, he speaks of himself. Obviously, they're not out. I'm a Jew, and if I'm a Jew, I'm Israel, then God has not cast us away. Okay, it's so obvious. For I also am an Israelite, he says. He is one of the people that he has just asked about. Has he been cast away? No. If he's an Israelite and he hasn't been cast away, then Israel has not been cast away. One obvious conclusion from this is that Israel is not the church, right? Israel is not the church, and the Jews are not Gentiles, okay? Everybody got that? Because he's making distinction right here. We can't be if he's making the distinction. Paul could not say the words he is saying, even thus far in Romans 11, if the church had replaced Israel, or if there was no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's a distinction, no difference, or if your Bible says there's no distinction, then you use the word difference, one way or another, okay? I'm not one to get into semantics over things. I don't like that. If somebody describes something, and that is what they're saying, and they use a different word here, then just swap the words. If they're the same, you know, distinction and difference mean basically the same thing. If Paul says in this verse, there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, then there is a difference because he uses the term Jew and Gentile. But if a different translator says there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, then you say there's no distinction or there is a distinction because he says Jew and Gentile. They mean the same thing. You have to use a word to describe something. So that's why you explain things. And there's a point where you just have to say, I have explained it. If you're not getting it, ask me, okay? Jew and Gentile. No distinction, there is a difference, or no difference, there is a distinction, okay? Because the reason why I'm saying this, because some Bibles will translate the word as distinction, and other Bibles will translate the word as difference. And so you have to make sure that you understand one is not the same as the other when you're describing 
two different things, Jew and Gentile, male and female, and we've gone through this a million times. Are there any females in here today? Yes, okay, so Paul, his words are always taken out of context when people cite that, always. It happens all the time. But if you think it through, there is a difference. Okay, so um, uh, I said that, never to return. He's an Israelite, Romans 11. Okay, he is of the physical descent of a physical group of people. Any believer in the church is considered a spiritual descendant of Abraham, of Abraham by faith. You can go back and see Galatians 3. Okay, now I was very clear in the sermon on uh, that we did last Sunday. It's very clear what Paul is speaking about. Those six verses from Leviticus 26, verse 40 through 46, are as important in understanding what we're talking about right now as anything you're going to find. And the reason why I said that, I said that in the sermon, is that you have people that are taking these verses from the New Testament and they're coming at it and looking at it completely differently. And they say that we're the church and we've replaced them and that we're the true Israel. And it sounds very convincing. You're using the same verses and they've come to a different conclusion. You cannot do that with Leviticus 26, 40 through 46. If you didn't watch the sermon, either go back and watch it or read it if you're a reader or you do what mom does and read it while you watch. Okay, I've got it online. You cannot make that, that mistake when you go to Leviticus chapter 46. Why? Because he's referring to the covenant to Abraham Isaac and Jacob he's making that and he's talking about that and we are children of Abraham by faith that's made clear in Galatians chapter 3 but guess what when he gets down he says and they will remember the covenant of their fathers two verses later guess what he's not speaking about the covenant to Abraham Isaac and Jacob anymore how do we know that because he says right there who I redeemed out of Egypt he didn't redeem them out of Egypt he redeemed them the, the Israelites out of Egypt. And so there's a very methodical thing which is going on in those six verses of Leviticus chapter 26, 40 through 46. He's referring to one covenant and then he refers to another covenant. And when he's referring to the covenant of Moses, he's speaking about a people way, way in the future, looking back to the time of Moses, that covenant. It's very important that you go back and you understand what's saying in Leviticus 26, because if you can get that right, then you will be able to defend this theology from Romans chapter 11. If not, you're using the same verses and you're just arguing one against another and you will never change somebody's mind. But if you show them those four verses or six verses and you understand how to defend that, it's irrefutable. There's no way around it. There's absolutely no way around it. Go back and, and learn those verses in a way that you can defend this to those people. Okay, so um, he's speaking of a physical descent of a physical group of people. As I said, you can go to Galatians 3 and see that. But this concept is never repeated in Isaac or Jacob. The reason for this is that Abraham's declaration of faith came prior to the mark of circumcision, not after. He was given his declaration of faith in Genesis chapter 15, 15 verse six. 6, thank you. And then he was given the sign of circumcision in Genesis 17. 17, thank you. Okay, many years later, like 25 years later, okay? The reason for this is that the circumcision came prior to the declaration. The circumcision was an outwards, what's that? The declaration came before the circumcision. The declaration came before the circumcision. Oh, I'm sorry, see, I do that, I do that all the time. That's why you're supposed to catch me on that. The circumcision was an outward sign of his already possessed faith. 
and that's another thing. If you want to talk about infant baptism and why they say, well, that is the same thing as circumcision in the uh, Old Testament, go back and watch Genesis 17 sermons and you'll see why that's incorrect. Completely incorrect. Infant baptism is as far from Christianity as it could be. It is absolutely as far from it as it could be. It has nothing to do with the sign of circumcision from Genesis chapter 17. So go back and watch that sermon and you'll understand. Did you just see Paul prating back and forth in the courtroom and he's got all this stack this high now? Absolutely. He he could stand on it. He's like a lawyer. He's got everything defended and he's done this since chapter one. He's talked first about the depravity of man, then he gets into Jew, then he gets into Gentile, and he's very methodical leading to this point. I don't know how people can make this error, but it is possible because you can argue this with people and they will still not understand what you're saying. Take them back to the law, take them back to where it cannot be argued, and that's where you'll find your answer. Okay, so Abraham's declaration of faith, the circumcision was an outward sign of his already possessed faith. On the other hand, Isaac and Jacob were circumcised prior to any faith. They were eight days old, they had no faith. They were circumcised prior to it, okay? Everybody got that one too. Okay, they were circumcised prior to any faith. They were members of the covenant people already. And that was demonstrated in the circumcision of their foreskin. Only after noting that he is an Israelite, does he say that he is of the seed of Abraham. This shows us that he was not only an Israelite by descent, but a true member of the faith. He would be termed as Galatians 6, 16 says, I brought it up last week, the Israel of God. Remember I went into that, the Israel, or maybe it was during the sermon. Maybe I said it yeah, on it Sunday. Okay, it was, it was during the sermon, the Israel of God. That's not speaking of the church. That's speaking of the true Israelites. They're not true Israelites, and they're true Israelites. He's speaking of those that are the Israel of God. That's what he's speaking of, okay? Not only of national descent, but also of faith in God's provision. There is Israel, and then there is Israel. There's a difference, okay? But it has nothing to do with the church. After stating his national lineage, and then his spiritual heritage, meaning Abraham, he returns to the national identity and defines what portion of that group he belongs to of the tribe of Benjamin. This is a high honor indeed. Israel's first king, Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Further, the tribe was almost annihilated due to a case of disobedience leading to war against them by the other tribes. They were reduced to a mere 600 men. That's in Judges chapter 20. Members of this tribe also sided with David during his pre-ruling years. They actually supported him in opposition to the king who belonged to their own tribe. That's in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. These, along with other noted accounts, including an entire book of the Bible, Esther, okay, other noted accounts could be considered a point of blessing. What tribe was Mordecai from? I just said it, Benjamin, right? Who saved the Jews from all of the disaster? Mordecai and Esther from the tribe of Benjamin. These are a point of boasting, okay? In the chapter ahead, Paul will continue to speak about the state of national Israel. As stated above, one may need to put aside their presuppositions about Israel in order to understand what God has been doing and what he will do with them in the future. Israel's back home once again, and unless this is just a magnificent mistake, then we need to make sure and support 
diligently study the issue of Israel by diligently studying your Bible. If God has planted them again in his land for his purposes, then be sure to acknowledge that, maybe witnessing to Jewish people or maybe by some other show of support for what he is doing. Okay, we gotta close. We're two minutes away from going over time and then costing somebody else a bunch of work today, and I hate to do that. So, um, uh, important chapter, Romans chapter 11. Like I said, we're going to argue from the dispensationalist model. We're going to argue that Israel is back in the land for a reason, and it's going to be defended. And yet, if you go to some other scholars, they are going to give marvelous defenses. You're going to think, boy, that sounds reasonable as to why the church has replaced Israel. Marvelous. I'm telling you, if you listen to them, you're going to say, that really sounds convincing. You have to decide which is correct and why. I simply just take the Bible as it is, but more importantly, I take the Old Testament as pointing to it. And as we said, 2 Timothy 3 verse 16 was written about what when Paul wrote those words to Timothy? All scripture is given by God. It was written about the Old Testament. Yes, it now includes the New Testament, but at the time it was written about the Old, and we should not make the mistake that we get all of our theology about Israel from the New Testament, because if we don't understand the old, then we're going to have very convincing arguments from both sides. Have to be careful with this, okay? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the chance to come and to look into your word. I would pray that I am right about this issue of Israel, and I'm certain it is the case because I'm teaching that, and I wouldn't teach contrary to what you want. There are other people that are sound believers in you that have great faith in Christ that believe completely differently about this issue, Israel. And so I would pray that each person would listen carefully to both sides of the argument, evaluate them, and come to their own understanding of why one is true and the other is simply not right. And to process that properly, that you would be with them as they seek this out. And in the end, we would pray that all would come to a full knowledge of this important issue of what is on your mind in the process of redemptive history for the people of Israel. And we pray this, that you will be glorified always through our adherence to your word and our understanding of your word and that we would be built up and edified in that same precious word and we pray this in jesus name amen okay let me back this up don't forget we got these things that the doctor printed off and let's see here we've got um break all right we'll be back there in a second Okay, have a wonderful week. Uh, we hope to see you here on the weekend, Sunday, and uh, until then, be blessed in all ways. Anybody heading towards Swift Road? She needs one mile right over by Swift Road. If you're not going that way, then oh, you can. Okay. All right. Yeah.